For the last six months or so, the state of Israel has been rocked by protests against the pending Israeli judicial reform. This reform, or overhaul depending on who is describing it, consists of a series of legal changes designed to reduce the power of the Israeli court system. Under the current system in place in Israel, new judges are appointed by a committee consisting of sitting judges, lawyers, Knesset legislators, and government ministers. The overhaul seeks to give a majority of seats on this committee to legislators and ministers, thereby giving the government more power in selecting judges. Additionally, the reform bill would prohibit the Supreme Court of Israel from reviewing basic laws and increase the threshold required for the Supreme Court to overturn regular legislation. The reform would also give the Knesset, Israel's legislature, the ability to overrule the Supreme Court by majority vote. Finally, the overhaul would allow government ministers to select their own advisors and prohibit the judiciary from striking down laws due to a lack of, quote, reasonableness. These changes were all proposed in January of 2023 by Yariv Levin, the Israeli justice minister appointed by the government of Benjamin Netanyahu, who returned to power as Israeli prime minister in December of 2022 following a one-year period in the opposition. Netanyahu and his political allies have supported the judicial reform, arguing that Israel's judiciary, largely composed of centrist and left-wing intellectuals, has interfered with the growing populist support for the right-wing Netanyahu government. Opponents of the overhaul, who are primarily found within the center and left-wing of the Israeli political spectrum, have called it an attempted illegal regime change by the Israeli right. Since the reform bill was announced, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have taken to the streets in protest of this overhaul, primarily in the liberal strongholds of Tel Aviv and Haifa. Consequently, Netanyahu announced in March of 2023 that the reform would be temporarily halted, and it has remained in this status since. Support for and opposition to the judicial overhaul has exposed a long-standing political rift in Israeli society, which can be tracked all the way back to before Israel's founding. Despite being a multi-party democracy, Israel's government is designed in such a way that there is still a clear divide between right-wing and center-to-left-wing coalitions. For example, the current governing bloc consists of six parties. The nationalist conservative party Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu's party, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party United Torah Judaism, the Sephardi ultra-Orthodox party Shas, the Orthodox Ultranationalist Religious Zionist Party, the Anti-Arab Extremist Party Otzma Yehudit, and the single-issue Anti-LGBT Party Noam. Meanwhile, the opposition bloc consists of six parties, the Liberal Democratic Party Yesh Atid, the Big Ten Alliance Blue and White, the Secular Right-Wing Party Israel Betenu, the Social Democratic Labor Party, the Socialist and Pro-Arab Alliance Hadash Ta'al, and the Pro-Arab Islamic Party Ra'am. Based on the descriptions of the governing parties, this divide may just seem like one between the religious right and secular liberals and leftists. 
However, this is not necessarily the case. Netanyahu comes from a secular Jewish background, and his party Likud supports maintaining the secular religious status quo in which a secular government has authority over all matters except for family law. Conversely, former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, a member of the anti-Netanyahu bloc who spent part of his childhood in Teaneck, New Jersey, was the first Orthodox Jewish Prime Minister and the first to routinely wear a yarmulke. The primary issues that divide the Israeli political sphere are approaches to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, particularly towards Israeli settlements in the West Bank, and concerns over Benjamin Netanyahu's cult of personality in light of his ongoing corruption trial. Division in Israel over how to handle the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and broader Arab-Israeli conflict is nothing new. In the past, such tensions have led to fighting and bloodshed between Jewish Israelis. One such incident even took place while Israel was at war with its Arab neighbors. I'm going to tell you all about it, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 91st episode of this podcast, and I'm excited for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Cameron Sherman, David Kahn, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and becoming a patron. One more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Spotify for Podcasters. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Spotify for Podcasters. Israeli political divide took after respective divisions of Zionism, Israel's founding ideology that called for the establishment and maintenance of a Jewish national homeland in an area of the southern Levant, often referred to as the Land of Israel, Canaan, or Palestine. In the early 20th century, when the Zionist movement came to prominence, the dominant faction were the General Zionists, led by the Polish-born writer David Ben-Gurion and the Belarusian-born biochemist Chaim Weizmann. The General Zionists were a big tent of liberal Zionists who had a common focus on democracy and human rights, with a sizable faction adhering also to labor Zionism, an ideology with elements of social democracy and even Soviet-inspired socialism. In 1925, Zeev Jabotinsky, a Ukrainian-born veteran of the Middle Eastern theater of World War I who had served in the British Army, founded Hatsohar, or the Union of Revisionist Zionists. In the Revisionist Zionist Manifesto, Jabotinsky expressed opposition to the liberalism of the general Zionists and especially the socialism of the labor Zionists, promoting territorial maximalism and advocating for Jews to settle in the entirety of the historical land of Israel. In practical terms, this area included the British-administered territories of Mandatory Palestine, which includes present-day Israel and the Palestinian territories, as well as Transjordan, or present-day Jordan. 
The general Zionists staunchly opposed this position, believing it would harm relations with the British and with the Hashemite dynasty, which had been given authority over Transjordan. In 1931, Jabotinsky founded the Irgun, a revisionist Zionist paramilitary organization. The creation of the Irgun was primarily a result of Jabotinsky's opposition to the Havlagah, or self-restraint policy, of the Haganah, the mainstream paramilitary organization of the general Zionists. According to Jabotinsky, Havlagah, which prohibited Jewish soldiers from attacking innocent Arab civilians as retribution for Arab attacks against Jews, enabled terrorism against Jews. Under Jabotinsky's leadership, the Irgun began a campaign of terrorism against Arabs in mandatory Palestine, killing hundreds at Arab markets with landmines. Soon, the Irgun's violence would become directed at the British as well. In 1939, in response to Arab riots over Jewish immigration to Mandatory Palestine, the British government issued the Macdonald White Paper, which severely restricted Jewish immigration despite the ongoing Holocaust. In response, on August 26, 1939, the Irgun assassinated British police officers Ronald Barker and Ralph Cairns with a shrapnel bomb in Jerusalem. Less than one week later, the United Kingdom declared war on Germany, and World War II began. In order to focus on fighting Nazi Germany, the general Zionists and Haganah ordered the Jews of Mandatory Palestine to cooperate with the British, to which the Irgun reluctantly agreed. Many Irgun members joined the British army, and the Irgun would later give material assistance to Jewish forces in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Following Zev Jabotinsky's death in August of 1940, Irgun member Avraham Stern left the group and established the Lehi, an even more radical revisionist Zionist paramilitary group. Unlike the Irgun, the Lehi fought against the British throughout World War II, going as far as to maintain contacts with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. In 1943, Menachem Begin became the commander of the Irgun, ushering in a period of greater hostility towards the British. In February of 1944, with the end of the war on the horizon, the Irgun and Lehi jointly launched a mass insurgency against the British. In November of 1944, the Anglo-Irish politician Walter Guinness, 1st Baron Moyne, was shot to death by Lehi militants in Cairo, Egypt. In July of 1946, the Irgun bombed the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, killing 91 people, including 41 Palestinian Arabs and 28 British citizens. In April of 1948, both groups led a collaborative attack on the Arab village of Dair Yassin, killing over 100 people. The general Zionists condemned all of these actions and continued to cooperate with British police to crack down on revisionist Zionist extremism. But everything changed on May 5, 1948, one day after Israel declared independence from the British mandate, when the Arab-Israeli war began, as Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen all invaded Israel. The general Zionists and the Haganah had no choice but to ally with the revisionist Zionists, the Irgun and the Lehi, as all three major paramilitary groups were incorporated into the Israel Defense Forces. 
At this time, Ben-Gurion was also elected as the first Prime Minister of Israel. By June of 1948, the United Nations brokered an armistice in the war, during which time the IDF sought to bolster its weapons supply. The problem is, the United States and other Western nations imposed an arms embargo on all belligerents of the Arab-Israeli war. IDF commander Yitzhak Rabin, a prominent labor Zionist, circumvented this embargo by buying weapons from Soviet-backed Czechoslovakia. The anti-Soviet revisionist Zionists, however, had their own plan to acquire weapons. a ship carrying thousands of rifles, LMGs, and bazookas, as well as approximately 900 Holocaust survivors who wished to join the IDF, left Paris for Tel Aviv. This ship had been commissioned by the Irgun to resupply the IDF during the ceasefire and was captained by Monroe Fine, a former U.S. Navy lieutenant and veteran of the Pacific Theater of World War II turned Irgun member. The ship was codenamed the Altalena after Zeb Jabotinsky's early pseudonym. As part of the deal for the Irgun to be integrated into the IDF, Menachem Begin was required to inform David Ben-Gurion of the Altalena's impending arrival. Ben-Gurion ordered Begin to direct the ship away from Tel Aviv and towards the northern village of Kfar Vitkin, under the guise that landing in Tel Aviv would be too obvious a violation of the Western arms embargo. Begin, however, believed that Ben-Gurion merely cared about making sure the weapons went to general Zionist soldiers rather than revisionist Zionist soldiers, as Kvar Vitkin was a long-standing Haganah stronghold, while Tel Aviv had thousands of Irgun fighters ready to take up arms from the Altalena. This was likely a true assumption on Begin's part, as Ben-Gurion had expressed concern that too many guns in the hands of the Irgun could allow Begin to stage a military coup. On June 20th, 1948, the Altalena reached the Israeli coast, and Begin reluctantly agreed to have the ship drop anchor in Kvar Vitkin. When he and other Irgun members began unloading the weapons from the ship, however, Ben-Gurion went even further, ordering the Irgun to hand over all of the weapons to the General Zionist IDF Central Command immediately, and stating that Yitzhak Rabin and his men were surrounding the area. The Irgun ignored this ultimatum, and the Altalena began sailing away from the beach. Sure enough, Rabin arrived with hundreds of troops, who attempted to disarm the Irgun at gunpoint. Then, rifle shots rang out. It is unclear who shot first, but the incident quickly devolved into a firefight. Begin paddled out from the beach to the Altalena on a rowboat, while Fine and the remaining Irgun members on board opened fire on the IDF soldiers on the beach. Six Irgun fighters and two IDF soldiers were killed in the Kfar Vitkin confrontation before the Altalena set sail for Tel Aviv, knowing that hundreds of Irgun sympathizers would be there as reinforcements. By the time the Altalena reached Tel Aviv, IDF warships were waiting at the shore. David Ben-Gurion gave the order to Yitzhak Rabin to sink the ship, and Rabin, in turn, ordered the warships to fire artillery at the Altalena. 
While Irgun members were firing at the IDF warships, the Altalanas cargo hold, which contained tons of explosives, was hit by an armor-piercing round. Fearing the ship would explode, Monroe Fine ordered everyone on board the Altalena to abandon ship. Menachem Begin reportedly didn't leave until every other Irgun fighter had been evacuated, and minutes after Begin jumped ship, the Altalena exploded and sank. According to Begin, Rabin's men continued to fire on the unarmed Irgun fighters in the water, but the IDF denied this. By the time the violence off the coast of Tel Aviv ended, 10 Irgun fighters and one IDF soldier were dead. Over 200 Irgun fighters were detained by the IDF, although most were released within weeks due to public backlash. Nevertheless, Ben-Gurion and Rabin used the incident as an excuse to dissolve the Irgun units within the IDF, further centralizing the IDF into a unitary fighting force. Begin, meanwhile, took to the radio to urge the Irgun not to fight against the IDF and instead focus on the war effort against the nations invading Israel. In July of 1949, an armistice with the Arab world was called, and Israel lived to see another day. In 1977, Begin was elected as Israel's first right-wing prime minister. The political party he founded and ran under, Likud, remains in power today as Benjamin Netanyahu's party. Begin's refusal to start a civil war against the general Zionists after the Altalena affair garnered him much respect from both politicians and the general public, and Ben-Gurion ultimately apologized to Begin for his role in the incident. Rabin, meanwhile, would serve non-consecutive terms as prime minister, with his second and final term beginning in 1992. Sadly, Rabin's premiership would be cut short by the same far-right extremism he had once fought against. In November of 1995, Rabin was assassinated by an Israeli ultranationalist who was angered by Rabin's participation in the Oslo Accords and the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Rabin's assassination, as well as the ongoing judicial controversy, serve as reminders that the stark political divide in Israel displayed during the Altalena affair is still alive and well today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I really enjoyed learning about it myself. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, Go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Spotify for Podcasters. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to spotify.com slash podcasters. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long. <laughs>